Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, of course, your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet, and today we're going to talk about my life story. Uh, this comes uh, to our list of topics, again, uh, as a request from uh, an acquaintance of mine. He's, uh, I, I don't know him really all that well, personally. He's more of a friend of a friend. But uh, good guy, from what I've seen, I, I like him, like his stuff, cool guy. But uh, he was listening to my podcast the other day. I guess he stumbled across it and uh, texted me out of the blue. He said, hey, I just wanted to let you know this is really good stuff. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I really like your podcast. And uh, keep it up. And uh, so that was, was super encouraging to me. Uh, I really, really appreciate Eric Roussel, thank you for uh, reaching out and having that to say means a lot, a lot, a lot, especially starting out with something like that. Uh, Starting out with something like this podcast where you're you're kind of putting yourself out there for the public to listen to. Anybody and and everybody can uh, go on and listen. It's a little bit like public speaking, a little bit easier than that, Uh, but it's there forever. So whatever I say, it doesn't just, you know, go into the ether and then get forgotten possibly and and all that, somebody can play it back. So there's a little bit of, uh, of, of oh, what's the word? Uh, anxiety. Uh, more so at the outset, when I first started, uh, there was a little bit. And then as you go on a little bit uh, further, a little bit further, uh, you wonder, is anybody listening? Uh, it, so it's nice to hear feedback. There's been... Uh, a number of people so far who have given feedback. Uh, my wife's uncle Gary down in Nebraska has uh, contacted me to say hey, he had listened to uh, at least a couple of the episodes of the podcast and it was good stuff. He thought it was a good thing what I was doing. Uh, you know, gave me a call. We we talked about it for uh, I think about as long as we could. I, I was I felt apologetic. We got cut short. Uh, I had. Uh, the safety class uh, certification that I had to go and do just then. So I had to jump off the call, but uh, had a really great conversation in the meantime. He had some really encouraging things to say about uh, just, you know, what it, what it is that uh, he observes uh, me as trying to do here, which is that I'm trying to get people uh, to think and I'm trying to bring that back. Uh, you know, the, Justin Timberlake, he recorded a famous song of bringing sexy back. Uh, and uh, so if I were going to do some, you know, name my endeavor, something along similar lines, uh, I'm trying to bring thinking back and thinking as opposed to uh, just feeling all the time and just emoting, you know, aiming our emotions at whatever it is that uh, is the topic of the day. And then just, blah, you know, just blasting whatever topic it is with emotion. And whoever disagrees with us, blasting them with emotion too until they uh, desist or uh, come over to our side or flatter us. You know, that's not thinking. That is, uh, it's it's an abuse of the idea of thinking, uh, if we would call that thinking. Uh, So what we need to bring back is uh, measured, uh, polite, uh, genuine, honest thinking about issues, about ideas. 
uh, and bringing the truth to bear, uh, keeping in mind what is good, what is true, uh, believing that there is such a thing as truth. Because I think that was the death of, of uh, public discourse is when we stopped believing that there is any such thing as knowable truth. If you can't know the truth, then what's the point of thinking carefully about anything? What's the point of stressing out about anything? It's all relative. It is whatever you want to believe it is. So just eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow we die. Eat, eat drink, and be merry. Uh, that was the death of thinking in a practical, objective sense uh, and then having uh, the expectation uh, put upon you by the public that if you talk about things, you're, you're going to have to think about it. You know, now what uh, suffices is emotion and uh, appearance, image. If you have an image and, and uh, a, a reputation for being some kind of an expert or having a following, that's that's really more of what it is. So if you're popular, you've got uh, a lot of people that like you, then that makes you a credible expert uh, supposedly, and that's why you get celebrities weighing in on politics and they think that they're going to sway elections is uh, because they have money, because they have status, because they have a lot of fans, even though those fans are uh, in relation to uh, a career choice that has nothing to do with you know, public policy and, uh, and all of that, uh, for some reason – we give a little bit more weight, or too, far too many of us anyway, give uh, more weight to celebrities uh, in their opinions on things, their judgments on things, than we would, you know, just uh, some some stranger, some Joe Blow at uh, the laundromat, uh, the guy behind the counter at the uh, convenience store, you know, <laughs> uh, you know. It, well, we really should put celebrity opinions on about the same uh, playing field as those where you just say, oh, okay, hmm, that's interesting. You know, that's, <laughs> that's how you respond when they, they tell you, uh, you know, that the world is about to end, the sky is falling because uh, Hillary Clinton didn't get elected or whatever, Bernie Sanders. But anyway, um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not bringing sexy back. Uh, Justin Timberlake already did that, but I'm, I'm trying to bring uh, a concern for what is true and what is good back and, uh, and thinking and, and processing things in a, um, not in a rigid, mechanical, uh, sterilized way, because I think our, our heart needs to be involved, but it needs to play second fiddle. It shouldn't be uh, first chair. It shouldn't be taking the lead uh, in our evaluation of things and our approach to things. It really should be our head, and uh, and that can be difficult when the rest of the world is uh, just you know being led around by their heartstrings all the time. Apparently, uh, public outrage uh, is an art, and uh, it's a performance art where it, I think it's it's kind of like interpretive dance where people just you know they just emote, they just Bah, you know, just I'm just angry now. Um, but anyway, enough about that. So uh, the request was put in by Eric Roussel. He says, you know, hey, if you're wanting for topics, uh, it'd be interesting. I, I would like to hear your life story and or testimony. So you should do an episode or two about those for your podcast. 
And uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it occurred to me, he, you know, if he's only just started listening to the podcast here recently, he must have uh, not caught the first two or three episodes that I actually recorded and uploaded when I very first started doing this. Uh, but I recorded them in my truck while I was driving to and from work uh, with my smartphone uh, on my dash as I was driving. And so the problem with that was uh, my smartphone picked up a lot of road noise and it didn't pick up uh, good sound levels and good clarity on my voice. And so the audio was just, it, it was terrible. Right. And, uh, you know, then I got a microphone. I, you know, I, I recorded two or three episodes. I think it only took me two episodes. So I tried it one way where the, the, the phone was on my dash and then I tried holding the phone closer to my mouth and then that still wasn't you know quite as good as I wanted it to be. And then I thought, you know, maybe I, I'll just look at what microphones cost. And so I, lo and behold, you can get a pretty decent – this microphone that I'm, I'm talking on right now, 30 bucks, Not super expensive. Uh, I don't know what I'm missing if they get a lot fancier than this. <laughs> um, you know, if they made one with a uh, mute button for any time I need to clear my throat or cough or whatever, uh, I suppose that would probably be worth uh, some extra money. Um, I, I like watching Frasier in the evenings with my wife. That's kind of one of our uh, our things. When we have time for it, when I'm not working late, she'll get John to sleep, uh, our, our newborn baby boy, and then we turn on some Frasier or something like that. But I know there's a, there's a mute button uh, that he has in his recording uh, studio. And uh, I've been thinking since I got into podcasting, uh, I'm a little bit jealous of that. So I deleted those first three episodes, right? And that's what I did. The, the audio was just so rough. It was so terrible. And uh, I had this nice new microphone. And as soon as I heard, uh, you know, the difference in quality between my original first three and then what I was able to, to get out of this new microphone. I was like, well, oh, shoot. You know, I hate to have somebody come into the podcast and those first three, they don't even get past the first three episodes because the audio is so terrible. And so I just deleted them and they just kept rolling. And, you know, and there's there's a, a something I read once about the, the writing process. And that's more my background than uh, doing this broadcasting uh, recording audio stuff. Uh, but there was something I read once about the writing process, the editing process, your first draft, you can usually supposedly, according to this anonymous person that I can't, I can't remember who it was or where I read it, but they were saying you can usually in your, your rough draft delete out, let's say your first, you know, two or three paragraphs, pretty easy. You know, whatever it is that it takes to kind of get yourself started into a rhythm of writing uh, whatever essay or, or whatnot it is you're trying to write. If you just cut out the first three paragraphs where you're rambling, uh, you'll, you'll find yourself getting right to your point. Um, and that makes your, your writing a lot more engaging. It's kind of like you're just boom, you know, you're, you're hitting your audience uh, square between the eyes. From the very get-go, you hit the ground running, 
And uh, it's kind of like, you know, in a, in a movie, you the movie starts with somebody uh, racing down uh, a road or a highway in uh, a motorcycle. And you don't know why, you know, where are they going? What are they racing against? What are they fleeing or what are they trying to get to or whatever, you know, whatever uh, the, the answer to the questions are that are in your mind, you have questions and you want answers and you're paying attention now because things have started off with action. Right. And uh, so that, you know, something similar happens in the writing process. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't uh, hurt to uh, keep that in mind as you're editing a rough draft in case uh, you're, you're off to a little bit of a slow start. Uh, don't feel so undyingly loyal to those, those first three or four paragraphs uh, because deleting them, uh, maybe sprinkling in what substance they have uh, throughout the rest of your piece if you need to, putting that stuff at the very end of the piece to wrap up at your, as your summary. Um, very effective way to uh, be, a, be a more engaging writer, grab your audience's attention from the get-go. But anyway, uh, you know, if I think of my podcasting so far, uh, like that, that's kind of what I did. Is I, I recorded the first three episodes because I didn't want to get bogged down and just, you know, uh, not do this. Because it, because it was going to be rough, because I didn't know what I was going to be doing. And I figured, well, the, the best way to learn, maybe in this case for me, is just by doing it. I'll figure it out as I go. I'll refine fine-tune my process as I go. I'll record, publish, listen to it, invite feedback. And then between my listening to it and getting my own uh, mind made up about what it is that I, I've uh, just produced, and what, what could be better, what was good, what could be better what didn't work uh, between that and other people, then uh, I, I should have uh, an ability to just continuously improve and get better and better and better. And so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but you know, it, part of the collateral damage there is I actually had, uh, as opposed to writing, you know, you can just delete out certain words, delete out a sentence here and leave the rest of the paragraph intact. I, I had some good content in those first three episodes that, you know, but for the poor quality of the audio, uh, I would have rather, I would have rather kept, um, you know, I had, uh, my, basically my, my life story and I had my testimony and I had, uh, I think some, some rambling thoughts about, uh, church history and denominations and reading church history in plain language by Bruce L. Shelley and, uh, and such like that. Uh, so I need to find a way to sprinkle those in throughout the rest of, uh, my uh, piece, my <laughs> podcasting, uh, maybe put it at the conclusion uh, whenever that is, or just get to it right now. So uh, in any event, a uh, little bit of my backstory for those who are not familiar. I'm originally from Glendive, Montana. Uh, Glendive is uh, kind of a sleepy town where I think there's as many uh, retirees as there are uh, any other age group. Uh, there's kind of a trend. It seems like that you know, that was the case for Glendive, uh, where I was born, and then uh, also Hillsboro, Ohio, where I met my wife. Uh, seems like there's as many 
uh, retirees is not um, not necessarily a whole lot of young people. Uh, it's not necessarily a really uh, high growth area. And uh, just from what I know, the, the local chamber of commerce and politicians and business people, you know, the status quo in Glendive, Montana is like, hey, we like our small businesses. We like the way that things have always been. We kind of want to just keep things the way that they are. Uh, not very pro-growth in their outlook. They've had big business. I mean, they sit right on I-94 and the way that Montana is and North Dakota, the West. Uh, it's very easy to have things spread out for uh, an hour in each direction with very little but prairie dogs and sagebrush in between. And so, you know, Glendive is sitting right on the interstate with uh, Dickinson uh, an hour to the east, Mile City an hour, uh, roughly, I think it's, it's between an hour, an hour and a half, uh, an hour and a half to the west. Uh, Glendive could have a Walmart if it wanted. Uh, it could have a Target if it wanted. Uh, Walmart and Target both really want to come in there. But uh, Glendive is uh, is not not interested. They don't want to have too much disruption and have things changed and have you know too many people new moving into the area and wrecking it for all the natives. Uh, even though it would improve life for the natives. Uh, anyway, that's a topic for another day. Um, I'm from Glendive. Uh, my dad and my grandfather and my great grandfather uh, for all the generations back that I know of. Uh, on my dad's side, they were farmers. Uh, I think I'm the fifth generation, if I, if I remember right, fifth generation, uh, Eastern Montanan, uh, back in the early 1900s. Um, my dad's people came out from Ohio. Uh, they were Amish and they settled in, uh, Dawson County, Montana. They were some of the first homesteaders in Dawson County. Montana, and there were still uh, nomadic Indians traveling around uh, when they first came out, and uh, it was just kind of a wilderness. There was the railroad, and you know you'd get your packages in on the railroad. There was one bridge, uh, you know, that, that crossed the Yellowstone, and uh, you know, it was just it was a, a much different place, uh, very very rural, and and so then all these Amish. Uh, people moved out and their families and they brought, you know, you know, just family and friends, Dawson County uh, built up this little community of Bloomfield, which is uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, probably more like 45 minutes to an hour uh, North and West of Glendive. And uh, they built this little community of farms and, and homesteading. And uh, so that's where my dad's people homesteaded and built uh, uh, Red Top Mennonite Church, Bethlehem Mennonite Church. Uh, you know, there's just kind of this little uh, middle of nowhere feel, but there's enough of a community and people knowing everybody uh, around for generations and generations and pulling together in times of need. And it's very tight knit. Uh, even though things are spread out, people are as tight knit as they can be, and uh, yeah, and that's so that's that's where I came from. Out here uh, in Montana, this is you know something that people from 
further east where the soil is much, much better, moisture is much better, won't understand. But uh, out here, because it's often so dry and so arid uh, and so harsh, you actually need quite a bit more land in order to uh, make a profit. And, and once you get invested with your, your farm equipment, your expensive uh, machinery and, and whatnot, you, you need uh, a pretty substantial amount of acreage in order to, to make it work, uh, to, to come out on the plus side. And so uh, my dad, when I was growing up, uh, farmed 1,600 acres, uh, all told. And then his dad and his brother, they were uh, uh, kind of had a little bit of a, a cooperative going on where they had uh, chipped in together and purchased uh, a bunch of acreage. I think it's 5,400 acres, something like that. They'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, if they listen to this, but, uh, you know, good, good chunk of land. And then they would share the equipment and the tools needed to repair equipment when it went bad and, uh, you know, had, had problems and all that. And then they would just, you know, kind of share the workload, help each other. And, uh, and so that, that's what I, I kind of grew up with. I was born in Glendive. Uh, we lived in Montana, uh, kind of bounced around a little bit, four different uh, places. The first house I remember us living in actually was recently bought by uh, one of the elders at our church in Savage. Uh, he just bought it. Really nice guy, Buck DeBill. Very talented builder, uh, designer, very smart guy, and uh, his, he just does good work. And so he uh, purchased my childhood home because it was on the market, and uh, – it was uh, in need of some TLC. I don't think anything really had been done to it uh, from a repairs and maintenance standpoint since I was a kid. And uh, so he's going to fix that up. That's going to be cool. Uh, we rented a, a little house in Savage, Montana uh, for a couple of years uh, when I was a kid growing up and ran some sheep. I remember that pretty well. I remember letting them into the rhubarb one time. For those who don't know, rhubarb leaves are uh, poisonous. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of a, a panic moment for my parents when the, the sheep started eating the rhubarb. And we were worried that we were going to lose a bunch of sheep. <laughs> um, but uh, we lived there in uh, Savage, Montana for a bit. And uh, then moved over to the western side of the state. Uh, my dad worked for John Deere dealership over in Kalispell, Montana, and uh, worked, worked in their parts department. He was uh, interacting with a number of uh, – uh, one one guy that ended up uh, becoming governor of the state of Montana, uh, Mike Schweitzer, uh, ended up, I think, offering him a job, actually, in, in managing his farm, but uh, that was not to be – but, uh, yeah, we lived in Kalispell for a while, for a couple of years. And, uh, and then, you know, that's kind of nestled uh, with Glacier National Park uh, just on the horizon. So you've got mountains and trees. Eastern Montana is not mountains and trees. Eastern Montana is badlands and no trees. <laughs> and sagebrush and dry. Uh, and, uh, and western Montana is where you've got the mountains. And... Uh, evergreens and it's just gorgeous over there and it's and it's beautiful in eastern montana in a different way but uh you know it, i tell people 
you know, when, when I was a kid and we did live in Kalispell, my dad still farmed in eastern Montana. And during planting and harvesting uh, time, uh, spring and fall, uh, you know, Friday he would get off work with John Deere and we would all load up in the van. We would drive across the state and for the weekend uh, he would do the farming that he needed to do. And then we would load up and we would drive back uh, for, for him to go back to work on Monday morning. And uh, so that was how we did things. And I, I got very, me and my brother both got very accustomed to long, long, long drives because Montana is a big state. There's a lot of uh, miles between Kalispell and Glendive. And uh, so I got, I got accustomed to falling asleep uh, in the, van we had those bench seats it was a dodge caravan uh it was easy to just kind of stretch out at night lay down have a pillow have some blankets you wake up find yourself uh, at your destination uh very late and uh yeah so that was kind of a good memory for me i got used to long long car trips lots of traveling back and forth uh didn't really appreciate uh what western montana's beauty really meant didn't appreciate the the mountains fully because i was just a kid you know i was i was more concerned with my uh, legos and my star trek next generation and uh and you know in hindsight uh man i just i'm, I'm blown away uh at having kind of underappreciated it and uh, and that becomes you know sort of the dream of uh you know maybe hey one day we'll we'll uh move to the western side of the state and live in the foothills of uh, the mountains and have a little ranch and all that kind of stuff. That'd, that'd be super cool. But, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, my childhood experience up until the age of 10, uh, around 10 years old. That was when we moved to, uh, Ohio. My whole family did. And, uh, you know, the reason for that, just real briefly, was uh, there was a, a corrupt, uh, tyrannical local government official who liked to threaten local farmers with uh, losing their farms. If they crossed him, if they upset him, if they didn't uh, ask how high whenever he said jump. And uh, the way he could threaten their farms was that uh, they had uh, signed up for programs, government programs. Where, whereby they would get funds and money uh, to help them uh, purchase equipment, buy seed, uh, experiment a little bit, get through tough times, rough times. If there's a drought, if there's uh, you know a bunch of weeds or, or hail damage or you know whatever, the government gets involved in uh, this country and helps to uh, stabilize the process of farming so that we have a stable uh, food supply. And uh, so, you know, if you have signed on the dotted line and, and these programs, this money uh, from the government comes with certain terms and you have to meet certain requirements to be eligible for these programs, uh, you know, just imagine if somebody has the power to say that you are not in compliance and to write up and say that, oh, you are not meeting the terms and here you've accepted this money and you've probably already spent it on the things that you needed it for. And now you're going to have to pay back. 
And if you're a small time operator, kind of living on the edge, uh, just getting started, maybe, uh, you know, paying back the money from these programs uh, will break you. Just plain and simple, it will break you. The only way you can get your money uh, to pay back the program is uh, if you liquidate your assets and you sell your farm, you sell your, you know, and, and, and your equipment, you sell all of your stuff, you get out, but you're going to have to sell it at a loss, you know, uh, just in a pinch. And, uh, and wouldn't, you know, it just turned out, uh, cause, cause my, I guess a number of the, the farmers in the County, they were concerned about this. They had all run afoul of this guy. They knew what he was like, and how he operated. They didn't care for it. And they wanted him gone and they wanted him out of there because he was, he was a tyrant. He was a bully. Uh, my dad and mom, uh, they stood up to him. And by stood up to him, I don't mean that they got in his face and they got all growly and all that, but I do mean they uh, called for someone else to take a look at their file when he started acting like they had not met the terms of the program that they had signed up for. And so they wanted to, to have a second opinion because they knew he was uh, uh, you know, not uh, above board. And this guy obstructed uh, someone else in his office doing a review of their file. It literally stood in front of the, the filing cabinet, wouldn't let somebody uh, pull my parents' file to look at the details. <clears throat> and, uh, and from there, things escalated into a little bit of a, a tit-for-tat with uh, this official. And uh, my, my dad wrote a letter that uh, opened up uh, an investigation, uh, an, an internal investigation, uh, whereby this guy, in the long run, ended up being escorted from the building by law enforcement. Uh, but in the meantime, before that happened, it was a uh, several-year-long process because, as everybody knows, it's impossible, supposedly, or nearly so, to get somebody who works for the government fired. Uh, even if they're incompetent, even if they are uh, a tyrant, uh, there is – I mean, who do you appeal to when your government is corrupt? You can appeal to your government when your government is corrupt. But if the good old boys network – uh, circles the wagons around the guy who just is uh, abusing you or, or neglecting his duties, whatever, then what do you do? Where do you go from there? Uh, in this case, the FBI got involved. They investigated. But it was really it, – it was too late. Uh, you know, By the time that process was finished, we were already in Ohio. Uh, my parents had felt uh, very intimidated because the, the good old boys network or what they – uh, at least perceived as being the good old boys network. Uh, you know, it, it meant that uh, local law enforcement, uh, you know, trailed us off into the country for miles and miles and miles for no good reason down these meandering little country roads and, uh, you know, blocked my parents from coming into the building at one point to bring their own copies of their documents for this uh, inspector, this independent uh, you know, uh, investigator who was going to do the internal investigation at USDA, uh, do a, do a double check of the, the facts of the case. 
uh, my parents, I, I was actually, I was sitting in the, the car. My brother and I we were sitting in the car observing. Uh, I remember watching the uh, police blocking my parents from getting into the USDA building there in Glendive. And uh, my mom getting kind of hysterical, and that is her uh, – her <laughs> she she can do that, <laughs> uh, which, I mean – it, it was, it, they had no business blocking. It was wrong what they were doing. So you can, I mean, it's kind of a, can you really blame somebody for getting worked up about that uh, sort of a deal? Especially when you realize what's at stake, when you know what's been threatened is we're going to take your farm. Uh, and then you get the law enforcement uh, officers to obstruct help in obstructing you, blocking you from preventing that from happening from, from, clearing your name and saying, no, I'm actually, we, we are uh, within the terms. You have no business trying to intimidate us, threaten us, push us around. We are doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, all of this is to, to say, I'll put a little footnote here. Uh, this is, I think, a large part of why uh, I am conservative in my political leanings, in my political convictions, in my uh, perspective. Uh, it is not that I watch Fox news because I don't actually, if you want to know the truth, I am sick to death of people accusing me. Every time I communicate a conservative idea, uh, I'm being accused of watching too much Fox news. It is not that it is that I, my you know, fifth generation Montanan, uh, roots. Uh, I, I would probably be farming right now. It would have grown up on a farm if uh, if it weren't for this corrupt official who tried to throw his weight around, tried to be a bully, and was a tyrant. Uh, you know, and and I have the utmost respect for the courage it took. Uh, I'm very proud of uh, my parents for having stood up to that and said, "No, that's not acceptable. You, you're not going to do that. You're you. The buck stops here, right?" Uh, I think that took a lot of guts, a lot of courage, and there's definitely a high cost involved. Uh, I know because I saw it firsthand, and I, I uh, also paid some of that cost, uh, as did my brother. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was in junior high. Uh, after we moved to Ohio, I think the stress, uh, on top of everything else, was just—it was too much. Uh, which is not to say that I, I think they couldn't have gotten through. Uh, I think they, they could have. Um, I don't want to blame a corrupt government official for my parents getting divorced, but uh, certainly did not help things to have that highly stressful fight with the government. Uh, you know, losing the farm, losing everything, the stress of that, stress of moving across the country in flight of a corrupt uh, government official uh, did not help things. And I think it contributed directly to my parents getting divorced. Uh, you, know, it, you know, God is sovereign. I believe that. Uh, I believe that uh, we are called to submit to the governing authorities when uh, they are not telling us to do something that is contrary uh, to 
the scriptures to what God has commanded. That's clear. If anybody wants to get contentious about that, uh, you're wrong. You're not only wrong, but you are badly wrong. And there's no way you're going to understand uh, the fact of martyrdom for all the apostles, except for John, the beloved. Uh, you, you're just not going to understand that uh, unless you grasp that uh, there are certain points at which you have to say, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, for instance, when you're told to do something by a man that directly contradicts what God said. Uh, in this case, you can't say that uh, owning a farm is, uh, is you know, qualifies as, well, God told me to own a farm, so therefore I don't have to obey you. But it wasn't anything like that. It was, it was corruption. It was fraud. It was tyranny. And uh, not only that, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just all those things against my parents. It was those things against uh, a whole county of farmers who were being uh, intimidated and browbeaten and, uh, and just mistreated and treated unfairly. And in the long run, the investigation revealed that uh, here this guy had, had friends in real estate from across the state that, wouldn't you know, uh, you, you, you drive a farmer out of business. He's got to auction off his stuff on the sheep to be able to pay back uh, money to programs. He can't make it because uh, his whole farm plan was – uh, including these monies that you're saying all of a sudden he doesn't qualify for, so now he's got to liquidate, he's got to get out. And uh, wouldn't you know, uh, somebody's got a friend in real estate who comes in and buys things on the cheap because uh, the auction uh, was uh, predicated on this corrupt official pushing those buttons. And you imagine a scenario in which you know, you've got this farm and you've been farming in, a, in an area for five generations and, and peaceful people, too. Now, here's the thing. You know, the, the, the Amish and the Mennonites are not uh, warmongers. They are pacifists. And even the most militant among uh, the Mennonites and, and the Amish are still pretty doggone peaceful people, uh, even if they get a little bit hot around the collar. Uh, you know, they're, they're still – they're not uh, hair triggers. They're not warmongers. And, uh, you know, so, so you got that kind, uh, it, I'm sure it would have, <laughs> it would have gone in a much more violent, bloody, uh, tabloidy direction if the Bloomfield community had been, uh, you know, your, 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 uh, militia type back in the day, or maybe it wouldn't have, maybe this guy would have known, Hey, you better not go there. Better, better not, uh, try that. It, it could, <laughs> it could get ugly. But you just imagine, you know, farming uh, an area for five generations and then some uh, corrupt government official, he's got a friend who comes along and he says, you know, hey, I, I really like this little tract of land here. Uh, is it for sale? Well, no, not yet. But I can uh, try and make that happen if you're interested. Yeah, oh, that'd be great. You get somebody without scruples. And anything's possible. You get a little bit of a kickback, a little bit of a cut for uh, the difference, uh, what it's really worth, the property's really worth versus what somebody was able to get it for because it was sold in desperation. And, uh, yeah, that's it's just wrong. It's evil. It's theft. It's fraud. It's wrong. It is a moral issue. It's a gospel issue, especially if the government official 
and any of their any of their friends uh, profess to be Christians, all the while doing crooked, fraudulent things like this, uh, it's wrong. It's evil. It's evil. Um, but you know, what's done is done. As I said, God is sovereign. Uh, one of my sons I named Daniel Joseph. Uh, in large part because when you read the narrative of Daniel and Joseph in the Old Testament, you see two men who are uh, they're in circumstances larger than them, uh, strangers in a strange land. Uh, Joseph, because his own brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. Uh, Daniel is a captive youth in Babylon. So they're in foreign lands. And uh, God ends up raising them up to uh, basically being second in command of their countries and, and essentially running the largest empires of their day, Egypt and Babylon. And God is glorified in their faithfulness, uh, and they are steadfast, even in a downtime. Right? So you think to yourself, Joseph, you're a loser. How, how did you get yourself into this? Getting sold into slavery, getting thrown in prison. What a schmuck. You must have been a, a poor manager of your farm. You must have done something stupid. You should have kept your mouth shut. You should have just kept your head down. What were you thinking? Right? Uh, apparently God has a different uh, way of looking at things. He takes the longer view. And eventually Joseph ends up being second only uh, to Pharaoh in power and authority in the land of Egypt. And he has the power of life and death over uh, even his own brothers that come back asking for food because there's a famine in the land. And Egypt, uh, under Joseph's guidance, uh, because he can uh, interpret dreams by the power of God, Joseph has prepared Egypt to withstand this famine, and he ends up being the deliverance of his family and of many peoples. But it isn't always that way, and there is a time uh, when Daniel and Joseph are both in exile, and they are in captivity, and they are persecuted, and they are aligned, and they're Things are, are said about them that are not true, and their fortunes are not good uh, in the short and the immediate term. But God raises them up. Uh, I think that's important to remember, to not lose heart if you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, if you are uh, down on your luck, if you're having hard times, uh, God is faithful. And who knows what good purpose he may turn your bad circumstance to. Who knows? You know, in, in the case of moving to Ohio, I uh, I think it was it was bittersweet. Uh, you know, for me, I I've always wanted to get back to Montana. Six years ago, my wife and I moved back with our four sons at the time. Uh, I have been working in oil and gas ever since. Um, you know, it was my uh, strong conviction that God would bring us back here eventually. I think I told Lauren that even when we were dating still, I said, I, I believe uh, God wants us to, wants me 
to go back to Montana at some point. I don't know if that's where I'm going to end up, spend the rest of my life, but I, I do believe that's where he wants me to go back to. And, uh, and so he did. Uh, but in the intervening time, uh, living in Ohio, God had a purpose for those relationships, for those opportunities, for those experiences, uh, those interactions that I had there and then. And, uh, you know, for one, for one really big one, consequential one, uh, you know, I married my wife, uh, who I met in Ohio. And would I have met her if I had lived my whole life in Montana? Would I be the man? Would I have the wife? Would I have these children that I do? Would I have this life that I have were it not for my family uh, when I was a kid moving to Ohio? Uh, I can't see how. I don't believe uh, I would be. I would have uh, this circumstance. And so God has worked things to the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And he will continue to, as he promised, work all things to the good. And in the case of uh, moving to Ohio, you know, we kind of bounced around for a bit. Uh, my dad tried working for a uh, John Deere dealership there in Ohio as well. And uh, did construction for a while and uh, kind of had to figure out where we were going to live. Lived out of uh, tents. For a period, I don't remember how long it was. I think it was for a summer. Uh, we had our dog and our cat and our uh, caravan, Dodge Caravan. We had a tent. We pitched in John Bryan State Park. And my dad worked construction, and we stayed with some friends of my mom's. She'd been a, a piano teacher professionally in college and had made friends with a number of people that were uh, pretty, uh, you know, fairly well to do uh, in the area, Southern Ohio. And uh, so uh, through those connections, my dad ended up doing uh, construction for a time and we lived with uh, a family of uh, uh, you know, the, his employer, the guy that was doing the, that owned the construction business. And uh, we did that and eventually moved to New Vienna, Ohio, rented there for uh, a span of time before finally buying a house. I think, I think there were things tied up in the farm when we first moved. Uh, the process of selling the land, selling the equipment, that had to go through uh, before they could buy a new home. And uh, so we rented in the meantime and... Uh, Ended up buying a house in Hillsboro, Ohio, this uh, house from the 1860s, I believe, 1850s. Uh, beautiful uh, kind of Victorian painted lady. And, uh, you know, right on the main drag. Got it fixed up. I think they got a grant for Ohio uh, Historical Society, uh, you know, to, to fix it up because it was kind of a little bit of a, historical sort of building from a special time and uh, got it painted got some stuff done on the inside I think put a new roof on it if I remember right uh, and that's where we lived for most of uh, the time that I lived in in Ohio I think it was what 15 years something like that and uh, you know I, I was homeschooled growing up I'll, I'll mention that it was kind of an important detail I've, I've left out to, to date 
uh, in this recording anyway. I was homeschooled growing up. Uh, you know, first half of kindergarten, my parents had sent me to a little Christian school in western Montana. That was when we lived in Kalispell area. And uh, my mom came to visit, see how things were going during recess one day. Saw one older kid chasing around another kid with a baseball bat and no adults anywhere to be seen. No adult supervision at all. And it was just kind of a free-for-all. And she was uh, alarmed at that. She thought that was not good. And so she pulled me out for the uh, second half of kindergarten. I was homeschooled. They found a, another Christian school uh, nearby, uh, sent me to that for the first half of uh, first grade. Uh, but in that case, there was a, a teacher. She was going through a bit of a messy divorce or just had and uh, had a hostility towards uh, the male of the species. Uh, was She was angry with her ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband, and she was angry with her uh, young adult son. And uh, she took out that anger and resentment on uh, her class, her, 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 the boys in her class, uh, in me, for instance. And so, you know, here we are, uh, you know, me and, and these other boys, we're sitting in class. She's very nice to, to the girls. And, uh, and when one of us boys does something uh, wrong, not even necessarily bad, you know, I, she yelled at me and berated me, mocked me one time for not erasing correctly uh you know i got called uh, basically told i was not gonna get to go out for recess for stupid things got punished with more homework in first grade i loved reading loved learning <coughs> i was very enthusiastic about <coughs> school uh and she was very quickly souring me <coughs> on education and so my uh mom and dad noticed this my mom I uh, said, you know, nope, that's not going to fly. They ended up pulling me out. And uh, from there on, I was homeschooled. Uh, they had uh, definite ideas about uh, the nature of public school and that that was not a good place to go. My mom, actually, she went to Christian schools all growing up. Uh, she was from Florida originally and went to Pensacola Christian uh, my grandmother on that side, my mom's mom, she was actually a career uh, public school teacher, taught public school for 30 years. Uh, my aunt and uncle on my mom's side, they both attended public school uh, and then Christian school because the public schools were just merciless. Uh, you know, just, just dog eat dog. Uh, and my, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, he was a World War II veteran, and he had uh, had a little bit of a nervous breakdown, or a big nervous breakdown, series of nervous breakdowns, after World War II, after getting married. Um, so he was he's not quite well. He was in and out of mental hospitals. Uh, they, they tried medicating him in various ways uh, to deal with uh, the psychological problems he had as a result of uh, you know caring for. He was he was a, a male nurse. Uh, you know, gentle as can be taking care of, uh, wounded, uh, soldiers, uh, coming back to the UK from, uh, the D-Day Normandy in, in invasion. And so he saw, you know, he's just, just this gentle, so it wouldn't hurt a fly. And all of a sudden he's seeing, uh, young men, uh, blown to bits, missing parts, 
in horrible pain and agony. And that was his job, caring for them. I think he enlisted when he was uh, pretty young, fresh-faced young man, and uh, ended up having uh, breakdowns for the rest of his life as a result of that. And uh, a full disability uh, his whole life. But the public school administrators, they uh, were not kind. The teachers, classmates, uh, very not kind to my uncle, uh, Richard. Uh, treated him as if he was retarded and as if he was uh, kind of unclean and, um, and he wasn't going to amount to anything because his father had had a nervous breakdown, was was not well. And uh, he had problems. Right? My uncle Rick had problems as a result of that. And, uh, you know, I think my, my grandmother saw that uh, going on with him and with my Aunt Mary ended up at a certain point pulling them out, putting them in Christian school, and that just totally changed, totally changed their outlook. Uh, my uncle, he, he went from really struggling to doing pretty well, and uh, now he is uh, an educator himself, science teacher, uh, nationally uh, acclaimed. Uh, I believe he works in some relation to the Everglades uh, uh, National Parks and uh, an education center there, bringing in classes of kids, giving them tours and lectures and things like that. <coughs> uh, he's met uh, Laura Bush. She was given an award for being just this outstanding teacher, very well uh, liked, very highly acclaimed teacher. Um, but my my mother, she was the baby of the family. Uh, she was the youngest of three. So her, her brother was the oldest. Uh, then she had an older sister, and then it was her. And my mom, she went to Christian school the entire uh, time. Went to Pensacola Christian, which was very conservative. And then for college, she went to, uh, I think she went to a, a Pensacola uh, college, Christian college as well, uh, for a little bit. But she definitely went to Bob Jones University, which is uh, very, very conservative fundamentalist. Uh, school and uh, and then from there went to Cedarville University and uh, Cedarville University where is, is where she met my dad uh, they uh, were nine years apart my, my mom is nine years younger than my dad but he was from uh, eastern Montana and had grown up uh, with a farming family and uh, you know very hard workers businessmen farmers conservative Mennonite. My mom was coming from the Bob Jones, Pensacola Christian. Uh, you need you need written permission in order to go out on a date. Uh, you can't go watch movies. You can't listen to music because it's of the devil. Uh, that kind of uh, uh, background. So the two of them, uh, you know, and, and uh, long story short, they, they ended up getting married, and and then eventually came me, and my younger brother, and. Uh, you know, it's a uh, little bit odd to think of uh, what a Montana native, uh, you know, fourth generation native Montanan would have in common with a uh, Floridian. Uh, you know, they, I, I'm curious in hindsight, uh, you know, what, uh, what they're, initial meeting was like or what their first conversations were like or uh, you know, what have you.
Um, yeah, I definitely have a different take on their relationship and their marriage, having uh, watched them get divorced and all that. Um, but uh, at, at one point, they uh, fell in love and got married. And that's where my brother and I came from. And um, very, very different backgrounds, very different. I mean, opposite ends of the country, Florida and Montana are, uh, you, know, you just don't get much more different than those two. Um, you know, my, my parents had uh, different sensibilities. Um, Amish and Mennonite can be very, very conservative, obviously, uh, from the standpoint of, you know, Amish are known to, uh, you know, not wear colors. And <laughs> uh, in the most conservative cases, they, they don't uh, drive vehicles, or use electricity. They shun anything that's uh, modern, uh, it, you know, that's new, it's novel, uh, vain. You know, vanity is pretty much a cardinal sin uh, for the Amish uh, and Mennonites as well. They're very uh, strict about um, not getting too big for your britches, not getting uh, ahead of yourself, thinking too highly of yourself more than you ought. But uh, you know, definitely on my mom's side, uh, very much a, a, a fundamentalist um, view of right and wrong, uh, a need to maintain purity, to be good, to be right, uh, to do what is right, to have biblical scholarship, to uh, to live a, a godly life, and to have the right ideas about things. Um, you know, in, in those two worlds colliding, uh, I think... Uh, I grew up in, in a little bit of a storm. Uh, you know, you think about what happens when you get a tornado. Uh, you get a, a cold front and a warm front that meet each other. And the, the air just swirls. Uh, you know, it just it, it becomes, uh, uh, it can become destructive. Uh, it can be very dramatic. And, uh, you know, just growing up in, in between these two, uh, it seemed like, especially especially once they got divorced, um, there were a lot of things uh, that you know you, you go one direction or the other, and uh, you know one of them might be fine with it, the other might be uh, upset, uh, very concerned or very disapproving, uh, you know, and then they would fight about it. You know, if, if one of them thought it was fine, no big deal, and the other thought it was a really big deal, that's uh, not acceptable then they would fight about it. And then that becomes an, an added stress as well. Uh, you know, and, and especially once my parents divorced, uh, it became clear to me that, you know, if you can't please both your parents, uh, you know, and, you, and you've got to just pick one, uh, you, I need to, especially as I get to be more of an adult, I'm going to have to just figure things out for myself. And I'm going to have to think about this. I'm going to have to come up with, uh, you know, what is, the truth and what is the what is the good and think through that uh, and not be afraid you know think through that independent of if someone is going to get offended or have their toes stepped on by you challenging uh, their presuppositions because you know it just it just so happened I had to confront uh, my parents' presuppositions and their uh, upsets um, you know when 
when doing anything, really, it seemed like. Uh, if I would do this, well, then this one thought that was not so great, and then the other one thought that was pretty okay. And so then, you know, you're, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, depending on which parent you're <laughs> you're thinking of uh, or talking with. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think definitely when I was younger and I was in the thick of it and I was dependent and I didn't I didn't have the uh, benefit of age and of having uh, grown past it and gotten out on my own to be able to look back. Uh, it was very stressful, uh, very stressful to see the, uh, you know, the, the collateral damage of, uh, you know, the, the fight with uh, the government, the USDA, uh, trying to keep our farm and then trying to get away, trying to get to Ohio, watching my parents fight, uh, growing up, trying to become more independent myself and then having to struggle against uh, two parents with very different worldviews, very different ideas of, uh, you know, what uh, what does God want from us? What is the, What is our responsibility? What is right and wrong? What is good and bad? What is uh, appropriate and inappropriate? Uh, it was very stressful. And the only way to really uh, get through it is you have to set your sights higher, right? Uh, in the midst of a conflict between people who are imperfect, we're all imperfect. Uh, your parents are imperfect, even if they don't end up getting divorced. Um, you know, the, the authorities over you, whether they be government or they be family authorities, the church authorities or school authorities or whatever, whoever the authorities are over you, uh, except for God himself, uh, the authorities over you are imperfect. They make mistakes, and uh, sometimes they can be uh, unfair and unpleasant. And uh, that can be very disheartening, very discouraging. Uh, but the, the solace comes when you think about uh, God being the ultimate authority, and he is good, and he is just, and he uh, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. And uh, his standards are not burdensome. His rules, his commands are not burdensome. Uh, on the contrary, uh, he has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, was not afraid of offending people and telling uh, both uh, the lawless and the legalistic uh, where they could go, <laughs> where they were going, <laughs> uh, apart from him. And uh, and I, I, we have in that, I think, a great uh, example and a great comfort. Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, people that have uh, gotten disillusioned by church and they've wandered away from the faith uh, because of hypocrites, because of strife, because of, you know, church division, because of, uh, people being nitpicky and legalistic, uh, or, or being, or, or scandals. You know, there's the other side of it where everything's permitted, and and then you find out that uh, the leader, the reason they're so permissive and they're so gracious uh, towards other people is because they've been living a, a scandalous double life, and uh, and they're a sleaze bag and they're being sexually immoral and they're being godless and they're defrauding people and they're, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and you have, there's all a multitude of reasons why people leave churches and then never want to go back. And believe me, uh, that's a, that's a topic for another day. As far as my church history goes, 
Uh, this is a little bit about my, my family background, where I come from. Uh, you know, I, I understand firsthand. I really do. Uh, but, you know, if we set our sights on God and uh, remembering that he is sovereign over it, and even, you know, you think about Joseph again. Even the case of Joseph, where his brothers, his own brothers, his own flesh and blood, sell him into slavery. At first, they're going to kill him because they're so jealous, uh, because he's got something they don't. He's got this coat of many colors. And more than that, he's got his father's favor. His, fa his father very clearly favors him over his brothers, and they don't like that. And they're tired of him lording it over them. And, and then he tells them a dream where he sees... Uh, all of them, including his parents, bowing down to him, and they just as that's I've, I've had it. That's it. <laughs> you need to die, like you. <laughs> uh, and instead, you know, they they're like, well, okay, all right, we're not going to kill you. We're going to sell you into slavery. Wow, really? Okay, that is messed up. You know. Um, but, I mean, even in the case of Joseph, his own family, his own flesh and blood uh, ends up, you know, to, to put it mildly, they disappoint him. Uh, I, I bet you he has trust issues forever and ever after that. Uh, you know, but, but he ends up all right. God does not betray him. God does not uh, leave him uh, forlorn or abandon him. God ends up raising him up and, uh, and using him for a good purpose. And, uh, and so also, I think with Daniel, uh, and he, he is, he's a captive, uh, quite possibly a eunuch, which I think would be worse than being uh, in exile and captivity. But, um, you know, he ends up in captivity. He's being raised in the court of Babylon. And, uh, you know, he, he's got jealous others. He's trying to live a righteous life. And there's other people that are kind of competing for favor in the king's court. And so they make up stuff. They try and get the king to, you know, uh, turn against Daniel and put him to death. And uh, it ends up being not just that Daniel is uh, okay and he's protected by God, uh, but God ends up raising him up uh, to being uh, basically ruler, one of the, the main uh, top tier rulers uh, and even as uh, Babylon changes hands, uh, Daniel ends up persisting. There's regime change, and he ends up staying on because God favors him and is protecting him. So uh, I think, you know, when it comes to our, our family history, you know, none of us have perfect families. And I can speak as somebody who has family that uh, can present very well. It has, you know, certainly the Mullet family has a, a very good reputation in eastern Montana. I believe they do, anyways. At least that's what it, at least that's what uh, everybody tells me to my face. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess we could all be surprised uh, behind our backs. But, uh, you know, the Mullet family has a good reputation, has a good name. Uh, whenever somebody who hasn't met me before hears my last name, they say, oh, oh, wow, you're a Mullet? Oh, cool. Yeah, I know your people. And uh, we, we get along great from there. So that, that tells me something positive. Uh, but every family that's made up of human beings, uh, no matter how uh, polished, no, no matter how clean cut, no matter how conservative, uh, how disciplined, how wholesome, uh, 
how godly appearing uh, we all have our dark moments we all have our uh, vices our flaws our mistakes our missteps our uh, quirks our, our, our insecurities uh, we all have uh, things that uh, we'd rather uh, we didn't we all have thorns in the flesh as Paul writes at one point he's he had a thorn in the flesh. He asked God to take it away three times. We don't know what it was. Uh, God said, you know, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is shown perfectly in weakness. Uh, sometimes a family is an asset. Sometimes it's a liability. Uh, sometimes the dysfunction within family uh, can be crippling. Sometimes it uh, the, you just have to uh, look to God as your father and uh, consider that he has a plan and a purpose, even for um, the uncomfortable, painful things. Take, for instance, Joseph being sold into slavery. Uh, he's, he's still going to work all things to the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And, uh, and just, you know, my encouragement to you would be don't get discouraged by uh, the things you're frustrated with in your family or in yourself. You know, because maybe the problem with your family is you. <laughs> uh, and, and you beat yourself up about it. Uh, you know, if so, uh, don't. Um, you know, you're not doing anybody any good by getting discouraged, giving up. But what you would do well to do is to ask God for guidance and grace. Grace for uh, your family where they uh, err. Grace uh, to be able to persevere under the weight of your own imperfections. Uh, and empowerment to uh, endure despite uh, your weaknesses. Uh, you know, ask God to show Himself perfect, His strength perfect in your weakness, and I believe He will. Ask Him for wisdom, and the Scriptures assure us He will give it. Uh, but in any event, that's enough for this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. And now you know uh, a bit more about uh, my family background. I'm sure I'll sprinkle it in more uh, in future episodes. Uh, I might do another episode or two uh, like this covering uh, maybe some different facets uh, of my background, my testimony in particular. Uh, but for now, I'm going to leave it at that for a little bit of my family history and uh, hope, hope it was encouraging. Uh, hope you got something out of it in any event. Thank you for listening and God bless. <laughs>